You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. It is a great day to be back together. Uh, We just got back from Israel. We took 40 people from our church and we went to the Holy Land for 10 days and went on a study tour and it was phenomenal. And what I can tell you is that a week ago on Palm Sunday when you were here and worshiping the Lord and you guys did Easter egg hunt and had a great time, that we were actually driving from Galilee up into Jerusalem, and it was the same day. It was Palm Sunday. That's when Jesus came from the lower regions, and he came up into Jerusalem to sacrifice. What we're celebrating today is that we have a resurrected king, and it was amazing to be coming up into Jerusalem on the day that we celebrate Christ's his ascent into Jerusalem, where he would ultimately sacrifice himself. And people were waving palm branches, and they would cry out, Lord, save us. And many of them wanted them to just save them from the Romans, like kick the Romans out, and let's make you king. And yet Jesus had a different idea. He wanted to save not just a generation, but a people from their sin problem. And today I just want to say thank you to you for taking the time to stop, to stop and celebrate the greatest news in human history, that the stone is rolled away, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus, our Savior, Christ the Lord, is risen from the dead. Will you applaud for that? That's good stuff. Beautiful thing. We've been there to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre built in the, thir- in the 300 AD. And you go in there and there's a place where uh, basically it was built right on the side of Golgotha. Then there's a stone in the church, which was the preparation stone where they prepared the body of Jesus. Then you go way down in the church and you go to the tomb that Jesus was housed in and it is empty and it is phenomenal. You go there and you don't find Jesus. You'll never find his bones. He is a risen king. He's a risen Lord. And it is just phenomenal to see firsthand. How many of you in this room like to travel? Yeah? We're going to go on a little journey this morning. In fact, we're going to fly from where we are right here, and we're going to fly all the way to the Hawaiian Islands. Anybody like Hawaii in this room? We're leaving Sun Grove Church. We're flying up over the Pacific Oceans. We're coming down here to the island of Molokai, and there's a long plateau on the island of Molokai that is isolated from the rest of the island. We're actually going to zoom down in here and we're going to see why it's isolated from the rest of the island. This long flat plateau is isolated from all the rest of the Hawaiian island chains by the 2,000 foot cliffs that are there on the mountains. And what would happen is it is a beautiful paradise, Hawaii is. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, that paradise during the 1800s had become a, an island of horrors because there was a large outbreak of leprosy and it became a terrifying epidemic. So much so that the government grabbed anybody who had leprosy and they put them on boats and they drove them to this peninsula that because of 2,000 foot cliffs is isolated from the rest of the island and there was no dock, there was no port. They just made them jump off the ship, swim to shore and they were on their own. Every now and then traders would go by and they would throw crates of food or supplies off the ship and if the, the currents were favorable, they would carry near the shore and the lepers could go and get those but they basically built crew shelters made out of sticks and branches and the living conditions were horrible and the and the care for their need physically as lepers was horrible in seven in 1873 
Finally, after a number of years, a missionary arrived to live among the lepers. He wanted to improve their quality of life. By trade, he was a builder. So he got there and he began to help them build actual livable shelters to build houses to live in. And he began to encourage them, help improve their quality of life. He cared for the living. He buried the dead. He encouraged them with his prayers and with his preaching. And one evening, the missionary, after being there 12 years, he filled a basin of water at night with boiling hot water. And it was his custom to fill it with boiling hot water and then add some cold water. And then he would, he would wash with it. And, and as that night, he plunged his feet into the still boiling hot water. He had forgotten to put cold in. He realized that his feet felt no pain. Leprosy has started to take hold of him. 12 years into his ministry, he stood before the church, and that Sunday, he started with two words. He said, we lepers. And in less than four years after that statement, the disease had taken his life. He died. But here's a guy who came to help them, a guy who didn't have leprosy, but jumped into their world and ultimately paid the ultimate price, showing the greatest kind of love that he would lay down his life for people in service to them. Well, there was one who came among you and I when we were isolated and hopeless. We were castaways because of sin. Jesus came. Jesus came as a carpenter, a preacher, a healer. He encouraged people through his prayers and through his miracles and through his teaching. And in the end, he took the disease of our sin into himself, giving his life for us. Jesus did all that. He conquered death. He rose from the grave, and he's guaranteed to be coming back again. Jesus did the same thing for us. Now, don't think that I don't know that some of you in this room doubt that. Do you doubt that that actually happened? Do you doubt that people actually think that that kind of thing happened? And doubts come in different shapes and sizes, don't they? I mean, we're talking today about how to believe what you cannot see. It takes faith to believe what you cannot see. But there are people who doubt the existence of God. And they believe, literally, like with all their hearts, that there is no way a God exists. And that anyone who believes in God is just plain foolish. Doubts come in all shapes and sizes. There's other people who think that, well, yeah, there's probably some higher power out there, but I doubt his involvement in human life. Uh, you know, I doubt that he would actually hear my prayers. They would say, I, I prayed one time and nothing ever happened. And so if he's there, he didn't do anything. So he's obviously not paying attention or whatever. Some people would doubt that God could actually love them. They would sit there and they would think, after all I've done, if there's a God, I doubt he could love me, let alone forgive me. And they're thinking, I can't even forgive me for what I've done. Doubts come in all shapes and sizes. I know people who say, you know, I wanted to believe in God, but then I met some really oddball, weird Christians. And he's like, I wanted to believe in him, but man, where in the world do you, you know, you get some of the followers like that. They just seem so messed up. Well, doubts come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? We all have doubts, and yet doubt can lead to real and sincere faith. If you're taking your outline out today and taking notes, I think that God's got a message specifically for you. You might want to write some things down. There's a pen in the seat back in front of you. Take that out. Number one in your outline is this. Doubt is the beginning of real, sincere, and grounded faith. 
In fact, many people would say, well, doubt is the end of real faith. Like maybe you had some faith, but you started doubting, so your faith must be dying. And I want to argue that for many people, unless you actually push through some honest doubts, you may never actually experience the depth of faith that, that you otherwise could. In fact, for some people, a lot of people actually, they begin to doubt and they never really get their doubts answered. And sometimes the reason that you never really get answers to your doubts and push through to find the questions and challenge your doubts is that sometimes doubt becomes a convenient excuse for rebellion. If you have doubts and you say, well, I can still be the God of my life. I can still do as I please. And I don't want to actually get my questions answered because what if I get my questions answered and I find out that God is real when in fact you want to be God of your life? Well, doubt is the beginning of real, sincere, and grounded faith. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible is honest. The Bible is people who had great faith, people who doubt immensely. The Bible just shows real life. It shows messed up families. It shows great examples of faithful, strong, godly people. And it really just says that it's got hope for all of us. Whether we doubt, whether we believe, whether we have a great family, whether we're messed up, whether we have done great sins, or whether we have been a pretty good person, the Bible gives hope for all of us. If you have your Bible, open with me to John chapter 20, otherwise it'll be on the screens. Beginning with verse 1, we go to the day of the resurrection of Jesus. John writes, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. By the way, that's John who's writing this account. But he's being modest about it. He's saying, he refers to himself in almost like the third person that, well, it's this other disciple whom Jesus loved. They were just good friends. And so he, he says this. And she said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Well, John was being modest, but now he does what any guy would do in this situation. We're not naming names, but he's like, I smoked Peter. That's what he's saying. He's like, I got there first. He's singing, I always win, right? That's what he's singing, right? So, of course, in his gospel, he has to record that. He said he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he's talking about himself, went inside. He saw and he believed. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So you get the picture. They run down to the tomb. They don't understand what's going on yet. All they know is they saw Jesus crucified. They saw him on the cross hanging there. They saw when the soldier stuck the spear in his side and blood and water flowed out, which only is a medical condition that happens once you've died. In fact, it's a sign of death. And because of that, they didn't have to break Jesus' legs to cause him to suffocate faster. They did that for the thieves on either side of him because they hadn't died yet. They had seen this. And now they go to the tomb and they see the very things that Jesus was wrapped in, but he is not wrapped in them any longer. The tomb is empty. His clothes are still there. So we pick up at John 20, verse 18. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, 
with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, and you would be afraid too. They had just seen the Jewish leaders convince Pilate to kill Jesus. You'd have the doors locked as well. Jesus came, and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I mean, they're ecstatic, right? In fact, the Greek word there could actually be defined as ecstatic. They were just like overjoyed is, is how they try to translate it in English, but, it, but they were in almost like a state of ecstasy. They just, they can't believe, they're like, we saw you dead, and now you're alive. In fact, the doors were locked, and you just walked on through, like no problem. The tomb was no problem. The doors being locked was no problem, and you came in, and they were ecstatic when they saw the Lord. Well, guess who wasn't there at that first meeting? Thomas, one of the disciples, one of their best friends, a guy who had traveled with them for three and a half years during Jesus' ministry. They had seen all his miracles. They had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen amazing things, but Thomas wasn't there. He wasn't at that meeting. What do we see? We see that Thomas missed this holy moment. Thomas missed church. Do you know that you miss a lot when you miss church? What did he miss? Thomas wasn't there. He missed the presence of Jesus. He missed the power of Jesus. He missed the proof of Jesus' resurrection. He missed the peace of Jesus. You miss a lot when you miss church. I mean, those of you who haven't been here since Christmas, I want you to know that you miss a lot when you miss church. You miss the proof of Jesus. You miss the presence of Jesus. You miss the power of Jesus. You miss his peace in your life. And Thomas missed church, and he missed the proof of Jesus. So the other disciples told him, hey, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Hey, we've seen him. He was here. But you, Thomas, you missed church. And he's watching them, and they're all ecstatic and he's looking around at them, and maybe you've done that too. You've interacted with someone who just seems to have had a firsthand experience with Jesus Christ. And they're ecstatic, and you think they're just overjoyed in a weird way. And you don't think ecstatic, you think they're on ecstasy. And I think Thomas is standing there, and he's going, listen, I'd like to believe, I really would. But, but it looks like you all are up in arms, but I don't believe you. And sometimes Thomas has gotten vilified for that kind of response. Well, let's see what happens. John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, right? They're ecstatic. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where that spear was stabbed, I will not believe. I want you to realize that I absolutely, with all my heart, I love his honesty right here. What does Thomas say? He's saying, I want to. I want to believe with all my heart, I really do. But unless I get to see, unless I get to touch, unless I get to scratch and sniff, I don't know that I'm going to believe. I just can't. For you, belief might be cut and dry, plain and simple, but that's not the way that Thomas operates. He has a high view of beliefs and he listens to his doubts. 
And he's saying, I need something more. I need a little bit more. I'm not just going to settle for secondhand faith. I'm not going to believe just because you say so. And with all my heart, I respect that honesty. Number two in your outline says, I want firsthand experience with the risen Christ. See, a big problem today is that some people just kind of believe because their parents or their friends or other people believe. And they're like, I kind of believe in God. And we're just kind of Christians because, you know, you're thinking like, oh, I'm kind of a Christian because I, I, I guess well, I'm not really anything else. So I guess I'm kind of a Christian. I, I kind of believe in Jesus. And then one day something bad happens and it shakes what little bit of faith that you have. And then you begin to ask like, man, do, do I really believe this? Is Jesus really God? Is this my faith or is this a friend's faith? Is this my faith or is it my parents' faith? Is Jesus really like the only way to God? I mean, we live in a big world and there's all sorts of different people groups and they believe all sorts of things very devoutly. And how could I believe something that's just so narrow a claim? I don't know if I believe this and, and maybe there's more to this. I mean, does God really exist? And if Jesus did exist, did he really and actually rise from the dead? Well, do not miss the claims of his disciples. They claimed that God loved you and I so much that he left heaven. He didn't want to stay in heaven. He wanted to become one of us. He wanted to become the God-man, the only one that ever existed. And so God became flesh and dwelt among us. It says that he was born of a virgin, which means, follow me here, it means that he did not inherit the sin nature that you and I do when we're born from a human father, a human mother, and through the fall of mankind, through Adam, the first man, he did not inherit the sin nature that you and I do, which means he could live and live without sinning. He's the God-man, the only one that ever existed. God become flesh. That's why it was important for him to be born of a virgin, because he modeled the nature of his heavenly father. And on the cross... He could stand there and say, I am without sin. I do not justly deserve to die, but I will take upon myself the condemnation, the sickness, the shame of sin. I'm the only righteous one who could satisfy God's righteous wrath against sin and take that upon myself and I can become the perfect sacrifice in our place. That's the claim of the disciples. And so he died. He was buried in the grave. But he did not stay dead. On the third day, the stone was rolled away. He was not in there. Jesus had risen, and he began to appear to lots of people. In fact, at one point, he appears to, to Mary Magdalene. After she gives this report, she goes back to see what's going on, and Jesus appears to her. He appears again to the disciples. He, at one point, appears to over 500 witnesses at one time. My dad was an attorney before he died, and he tried cases like the flaw and the defect in the Hubble Space Telescope mirror. We're not talking little cases. And he told me one time, he said, Dave, if I could have 500 witnesses in a court case of any type, it would be a shoe in 
He goes, I take depositions all the time. Could you imagine if I had 500 people who agreed on the same thing? Well, Jesus rising from the dead historically has over 500 people at one time who give proof to the resurrection of Christ. So if that's true, you see, then it demands a response. If Christ died and was buried in the grave, rose from the dead, it demands a response. And for me, the only response that makes any sense is that if he gave his life for me, I must respond in a way to live for him. And Thomas says to his buddies, his disciples, he says, listen, this is important to me. I want to know, is this true? Because if it's true, it's going to change everything. And so I can't just take your word for it. I have to know for myself. And some of you are like, oh, well, come on. You can't have faith if you doubt. And I would disagree. Listen to me. You can't have real faith unless you press through sincere doubts. You can't have real faith unless you press through sincere doubts. Doubts are not the end of real faith. For many, doubt is actually the beginning of a grounded, rock-solid faith that will carry you to glorify God in all that you do. Thomas said, I want to believe. I really do. But I just need a little bit more. And some of you, 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 you've got to want to believe, but you just need a little bit more. And the beautiful thing is that is exactly what Jesus did for Thomas. In John chapter 20, same chapter, but verse 26 and following, it says, a week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas, stood, uh, Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This is an amazing statement. Because Thomas would have all the time called him rabbi. He would have called Jesus all the time, teacher, tell us this. He would just appeal to him as master or, or a teacher or a rabbi. But that's not what he says here. He sees Jesus in the flesh. He sees where the nail marks were in his hand. Jesus knows what he said, though Jesus was not there when he said it. And he all of a sudden realizes that this is not just a human being, but this is God in the flesh. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas was a person of great faith, even though he doubted. You see, doubt's not the end of real faith. For many people, it's only the beginning. And once Thomas got what he needed, just a little bit more from God, he went on to do amazing things in his life. He traveled farther than any other disciple, going all the way to India from Israel, going all the way out to India to say these people need to hear about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to know the power of the resurrection, that after we die, there is a resurrection, and that there is a God who can guarantee for you and me that we can be with him, forgiven, in heaven, righteous, standing pure before him because of Jesus' sacrifice. They need to know he went all the way to India and ministered there for years. One morning, his enemies met him uh, in a cave, and they came up to him, and they said, renounce your faith. And Thomas looked at them in the eye, and he said, I could never renounce, and he uses this statement, I could never renounce my Lord and my God. 
the same statement he said when he saw his hands, when he saw his side, when Jesus challenged him. And these enemies took a spear and they drove it through him. Thomas was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. That statement, my Lord and my God, happens in the heart when you move from believing in God to believing God. I want you to catch the difference. You might be up in the loft today, and I want you to catch the difference that there's a difference between believing in God. I believe that there's a higher power. I believe in God or believing God. There's a big difference in believing in God and actually believing God. In fact, some of you in this room, you are believers in God, but right now in your life, you're not believing God. You're not believing God with your impossible situation. You're not believing God to be your supply, to be your resource, to be your help, to be your provider. You're not believing God to take care of your sickness or your illness, and if he doesn't choose to do it at this time in your life, to take care of your soul in the afterlife. There's a big difference between saying, I believe in God, and I'm believing God. See, Thomas went from believing in God to believing God through a personal relationship. So what does Jesus say to Thomas? In John 20, verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's saying, Peter, you got the benefit of the doubt. You got to see me. But there are coming a generation, many generations of people who will believe in me though they cannot see me. They will put their faith in the reality of my life, my death, my resurrection, and my divinity even though they have not seen me. So how do you believe what you cannot see? I mean, how many of you in this room, by the way, how many of you in this room know that sin can be fun? Come on, be honest, huh? But raise your hands, right? Okay, those of you with your hands down, you're either lying or you weren't doing it right. Because <laughs> sin can be fun for a little while. Like, it can. Yeah, it can be fun for a little bit. And, and, and it builds up, but then your sin finds you out. Your sin catches up to you. It's, it's like having a sneeze. You know, like when your, the allergies hit this week and you know, like when your nose is running and you get like a, and you start the false starts and then you get that and you're wanting that sneeze come out and finally you're, achoo. And when that achoo happens, man, you feel so good, except that you got snot everywhere. And that's what it's like. Like sin can be fun for a little, like there's this watchu, but then you're caught in your snot. And that's what happens to you and to me with our sin. And that's what happened to me, that my sins had caught up with me. And so I had to become curious about God. Could God love me? Could God forgive me? Because look at me. I, I had junk all over everywhere. And could God love that? There was a time in my life when I was a teenager, when I was suicidal. I had a definite plan to end my life. I had falsely begun to believe that my acceptance was based on my performance, whether academically or socially, and honestly, at that time in my life, I was failing at both. I didn't know who I was, and I didn't trust other people to love me, and I had a plan, and so in my desperation, I just said, God, if you're real, God, you've got to give me just a little bit more. You've got to let me know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're real and that you care. Otherwise, I'm gonna end it. I'm gonna end my life. 
Well, that day I went home and I had to bring home a report card to my parents and uh, I had not been doing well and uh, I kept getting, you know, punished more and more and more like I get hired, like I get grounded and other things uh, for my report card. And I just thought if they react poorly, then that's it, I'm going to take my life. And I came home and I gave this report card to my parents and I gave it to my mom and she looked at it and she looked at me and she started crying. And I thought, oh crud, I am in such trouble, this has never happened. And in that moment, she just began to say and speak words of life to me, just saying, Dave, you are so loved, you're so much better than this, this doesn't reflect who you really are and what God wants to do in you. And then I started crying in the moment, I actually chucked away my plans to end my life and plans of self-destruction, and I began to cry because I knew as my mom was speaking that though she was speaking in the reality, it was God reaching into my life and God meeting me at my point of need and God ministering to me to help me take my plans of self-destruction away. I needed just a little bit more. And I knew that that was not just the words of my mom, but the words of God touching my wounds, putting his finger where I hurt, saying that his sacrifice and his pain and his death could make the difference for me. Well, how do you touch Jesus' scars and see his reality when you cannot see God. I mean, do you believe in things you cannot see? Do you believe in atoms? Anybody here believe in atoms? Yeah, some of us, right? I can't see an atom. I don't understand that. Like, you know, electron microscopes and all that. I don't get it. How many of you in this room, you believe in gravity? How many of you believe in gravity because of personal experience? Okay, you can't see gravity, but you know it's real. But you can't see it. Billy Graham often asks, do you believe in the wind? And people be like, of course I believe in the wind. He goes, well, have you ever seen the wind? And people are like, yeah. And he goes, no, you can't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind, but you've never seen the wind. And yet you believe in something you cannot see. God loves you. God gives us this belief. He gives us an ability to see him through creation. That when a, a storm happens here and a rainbow pops up after the storm, we go, oh, cool, look how beautiful that rainbow. And we're trying to like capture it on our cell phones and stuff, and it's really hard because it never really looks like how it looks in the sky. And you're like, that's really cool of nature, but you don't realize that God is saying, I'm putting up a billboard to you. When you see that rainbow, it is a promise from me that I, out of my great wrath and hatred for sin, I will never destroy the entire earth again with a flood like I did in the history. I am making a promise to you that I will make a better way. And he did it through Jesus. You look up at night and you see the stars. We were flying on a plane toward Israel and I looked out my window at night and it was weird because I could, I could see like um, a lightish color in the sky and I could see stars through it, but it was dark down below, but I could still see stars. And I'm like, what in the world? And all of a sudden it dawns on me. We're flying over the polar ice cap and those, that's the northern lights. So I throw a shirt over my head to block out all the light. I'm taking a picture with my camera through the window and I got a picture of the northern lights from an airplane with stars shining through and just very cool. Again, when you see the heavens, the scriptures say that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And we look out at the skies and we say, maybe there's other life out there. 
And God says, you're missing the point. Because even if there's other life out there, you're mortal. You will never live the distances that are created in the galaxy. Do you realize that the galaxy is created far too big for, to be our neighborhood? The, gal- the, the universe was created far too big for humans to be able to see, understand, or enjoy it. Because the reality is, if you travel 100,000 light years, you barely get out of our galaxy. Not even a neighborhood galaxy or one far away. You can't live long enough. You're mortal like I am. We can't live long enough to actually check it all out. And God says again, it's a billboard. The heavens declare my glory that there is something far beyond you, far beyond your lifespan. You're mortal, but I am the immortal one. I'm the one who can conquer sin. I'm the one who can conquer death. That is Jesus Christ. And that is God out of his great love saying, you look at the universe and wonder what else is out there. And he says, You're asking, how do we get out there? And God's saying, the whole point of the universe is to let you know who created it. And to let you know that I loved you enough to come to earth to give my life for you. God loves you. So you and I, we touch his scars. We put our hand where the wound was. You experience Jesus firsthand when you realize that he gave his life for you. Like a missionary, Jesus came to us in our sin disease, our sin problem, and he said, I will make a way to forgive you of your worst sins. I will make a way to make what is wrong right. I will make a way because it is my love. Even though you've not seen me, Jesus wants to cover your wounds of your sin and heal you. Like a missionary to the lepers, he says, I gave my life for you. It's a great exchange that he, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. What a terrible exchange Jesus took on the cross. He took your sin, he took my sin, he said, I will receive that and in trade, you don't deserve it, but in trade I will give you my righteousness when you put your faith in who I am. When you go from believing in God to believing God. That's when you touch my wounds. That's when you see my side. That's when you experience God firsthand. He loves you. God loves you. He is for you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's actually nothing you could do to make him love you less. Love is what God is. It's who he is. He's love and justice. He's not so loving he doesn't become just, but he says, in my justice, I will take the punishment of the sin. My love remains but put your faith in what I did on the cross. That's why, through Christ, there's only one way to be saved. Love is not just what God does. Love is in his very nature. It's who he is. And I believe with all my heart that God loves you so much that he became like you. Christ was without sin. He died. He rose again, and he's coming back. And some of you in this room are saying, I'd like to believe, I want to believe, but I don't know everything. And listen, you don't need to know everything to believe something. You don't have to know everything about gravity to believe gravity. You don't know everything about atoms to believe atoms. What you need to do is start with something like this. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who can forgive me. I don't know how that all works or how it all happens, but I believe that Jesus can forgive me, and I believe he can make me new. And today, by faith, I trust him. I give my life to him. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed so you're not distracted by anybody around you, I want you to take a personal inventory right now.
that maybe there's some of you in this room that for the first time today, you're realizing that Jesus is your Lord and your God. That there's no other way for a person to be saved but through faith in the one who gave his life for you. And if today you'd like to have a personal relationship with Jesus, you'd like to receive the forgiveness of your sins, you'd like to know with assurance that when you and I die, that your sins are wiped away, that you will stand before a God and you will be holy because of Jesus. If that's you today, you want the God who will show up in your life and say, peace be with you. If that's you today, then you pray a prayer right where you're seated after me like this. You might pray it on the inside. You might pray it silently with your words in your chair. God hears you. He created you. He knows you. But maybe you just repeat something like this after me. You just pray a prayer like this. Say, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life. Make me a new creation. I don't know how it works, but would you give me a new heart? I believe that you died on the cross, that you were buried, that you rose to new life and that you were God. Would you please wash me as white as snow? Because, because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.